on this episode of the Defense Scoop Podcast. Why the DoD cares about climate change and climate resiliency. And how innovative technology and data-driven decision-making are key to bringing positive impacts to the DoD's mission of sustainability. It's Wednesday, September 6, 2023. Welcome to the Defense Scoop Podcast, where you'll hear all about what's going on across the defense technology landscape. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. More than 200 attendees representing government, military, approximately 60 companies, universities, and federally funded research centers participated in a three-day conference June 20th through the 22nd that the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering organized and hosted to deliberate on key advancements and issues in the fields of artificial intelligence and autonomy within the U.S. defense sector. A senior DOD official told Defense Scoop that at the conference, industry and academia, quote, heard our problems about where we needed help and what technical gaps we needed closed. And then we heard from industry and academia about their research and applied to those gaps. Then we took down actions on how to move forward to address those gaps. Among the prominent industry organizations present were Amazon, IBM, NVIDIA, Boeing, BAE, Boston Dynamics, Dynetics, Applied Intuition, Skydio, and 2.6. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks last week unveiled plans to field thousands of autonomous systems in the next two years. This comes as part of a larger initiative called Replicator, which envisions the use of robotic platforms, commercial technologies, and other innovations to offset China's massive ongoing military buildup. Unveiling the new initiative, Hicks said, Replicator is meant to help us overcome the People's Republic of China's biggest advantage, which is mass. More ships, more missiles, more people. You can read more about these stories and much more at defensescoop.com. Climate change and defense. Those are two topics you don't often think about together. But in recent years, the Defense Department has made sustainability, climate, and energy resiliency top priorities related to national security. And it makes a lot of sense. Not only is the DoD one of the largest energy consumers in the world, but in the digital age, emerging threats put the department's access to energy at risk in novel and new ways. Joining me to discuss the DOD's focus on the climate and energy, how innovative technology plays a role in that, and what's coming next is Brendan Owens, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations, and Environment. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm I'm really excited to be able to uh, share a couple minutes with you and chat about this stuff. Well, I want to start with a uh, recent uh, speech that Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks gave at West Point to cadets speaking about climate change. And during that talk, she said that she gets a certain question a lot. And it's a question I wanted to start a conversation with, too. So I figured I'd use her question as my first question. And it is, why does the Department of Defense care about climate change? Because I'm not sure when people think about national security and defense, it's uh, climate change is the thing that initially jumps to mind. So in, in sort of taking the question from her mouth, let's start there. Why does the DOD in its defense and national security mission set care so much about climate change? Yeah, I, well, it's, it is a good question. I think the deputy teed it up well. I was able to be there for for that event, so uh, a lot of a lot of the words that she's that she had she used were were definitely resonating 
uh, with me during during the day. But I think it starts our, our response around climate change starts where everything else starts with with DOD. It's mission. It's mission related. Uh, whether that is responding to more extreme weather, floods, droughts, uh, whether it is looking at the impact, the, the economic and readiness impact uh, of, of, of more extreme weather disasters. Um, all of that affects DOD's ability to uh, to do exactly what we are here to do, which is which is defend the nation and then and deter uh, conflict. So just a couple of things that I think are worth pointing out in terms of what the readiness and mission impacts to DOD are. Um, in 2016, the National Guard, which one of their responsibilities is to uh, do wildland firefighting. Um, and in 2016, they spent about 14,000 personnel days uh, fighting fighting wildfires. In 2021, they spent 176,000 person days fighting wildfires, right? So that is, these are days that National Guards, uh, National Guard uh, soldiers are not training for other things, right? So there's a direct readiness impact there. And then you can just go down the litany of billion dollar disasters uh, that have happened over the last 10 years, a billion dollars at Offit uh, with a flood, $3 billion worth of uh, hurricane damage uh, at Camp Lejeune um, in North Carolina, and then $5 billion worth of damage at, at Tyndall Air Force Base uh, in Florida. These are very real impacts that compromise DOD's ability to do its job. Uh, so from the standpoint of ways that we are uh, internalizing the risks and the opportunities that come with responding to these, these, these changing patterns, of of climate, um, it's 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 really existential for DoD. It's, it's all about readiness. That's incredible. Some of those numbers are are, are staggering to say the least, and uh, I think it makes it pretty apparent why this is such a big deal. Um, I'm curious, you know, um, thinking about how the DoD is attempting to make a difference in in its mission set. Um, how how is the the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Pentagon, thinking about policy and guidance that uh, can help drive some of the change and uh, uh, establish impact that is going to bring it in the direction of, of some of its goals. And I guess we haven't necessarily even talked about what those goals are, but um, you know, what is the DOD trying to accomplish as it re relates to climate, climate change and climate resiliency? Yeah, I think you, the last word you use is the one that that immediately comes to mind for me, which is resilience, right? Our ability to uh, not have our, our mission readiness compromised by whatever the event is happening, whether it is a, a cyber or a kinetic or a natural uh, natural disaster challenge is is foremost on everything that we do. So, so our piece of that, uh, the EINE portfolio, energy installations and environment portfolio, is really focused on a couple of different, a couple of different key lines of effort that we've been looking at. One is operational energy, which I'll certainly talk about. But the one that feels much more close to home for me is installations resilience. So we have our installations in the homeland and, and abroad uh, are used to be taken as as sort of a matter of fact that we have the ability to have pretty much autonomous uh, reign over our over our. Uh, uh, installations, right? There was no threat to a to a, a military installation in 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 Conus. Um, that's that's not the case anymore, right? We're looking at increasing levels of risk associated with 
cyber attacks associated with extreme weather that are prompting us to engage in a series of resilience efforts that are designed to make sure that we can recover from any any attack that comes our way or any 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 potential for disruption. One thing that I think is worth pointing out is the the efforts that the military departments have put into performing Black Start exercises at an installation. So a Black Start exercise, it, it, for 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 your listeners who don't know, is when you basically purposefully disconnect the installation from the commercial power grid. And what you're looking for there is to understand how the installation responds to a disruption. And that disruption could have been a cyber attack. That disruption could have been a hurricane blowing through and knocking down transmission lines or distribution lines or knocking out generation. It could have been a hard freeze in, in Texas uh, that, that shut down gas plants um, or the ability to, to generate electricity uh, via, via the gas infrastructure. Uh, and, and what you learn from those exercises are your vulnerabilities. You learn how your backup systems function. You learn about the resilience of your installation. And you basically have a plan coming out of that that you then implement strategies that are designed to be able to do better the next time, right? So these, these Black Start exercises are iterative uh, and they are intended to make sure that we understand our vulnerabilities, implement strategies that keep, make it capable of us for us to respond to them, and then also understand what the long-term prognosis looks like. So one of the vulnerabilities we routinely, we routinely discover is that all of the emergency generation that we have on the installations doesn't fire up as seamlessly as we as we assumed it would in our old plans going into the black starts, right? So we, we turn off the power, everything is supposed to turn on magically, but systems are complicated and, you know, maybe somebody didn't pull the PM on rent the preventive maintenance on the generator the way they should have, and it doesn't start up, right? So that gives us a better understanding of the types of opportunities that we have to increase our resilience by investing in things like microgrids, like distributed uh, gen energy generation, whether that's uh, PV, whether it's uh, small, modular, nuclear, uh, and then also integrating in things like long-term uh, grid-scale energy storage, right? So if you have big batteries that don't require any type of mechanism to turn on, they're there kind of just as standby. Uh, you can transfer seamlessly between, between power sources. So with resilience at its core, we then move into all of the clean energy tech that we understand has better reliability, better resilience uh, than sort of the traditional, uh, more traditional systems that we've relied on in the past. And it, it's in the deployment of the combination of all of those things together that we achieve the resilience and the reliability and the ability to fight through whatever it is that we're looking for. You mentioned some very interesting things that kind of uh, got got my uh, journalist sense tingly, the, especially on the the tech side, the innovative tech side, with some of the microgrids and some of those alternative uh, methods to sustain uh, operations in in events of crisis and whatnot. And I'm curious, you know. Um, there's been a lot of examples of, you know, things that, like you mentioned, the microgrids, solar microgrids or water purification systems that services are using, uh, just to name a few. But how has the department looked to embrace innovative technology to support its goals in climate resiliency and climate change? I think the innovation is 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 key to what we're going through. I would say on the installation side, the 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 
there's not much more that we really need to invent in order for our installations to be resilient and uh, responsive to climate. Like we understand how to build buildings in hurricane prone zones that are going to do better than the Tyndall buildings did when uh, when the hurricane rolled through there uh, several years ago. Right. So we have a, a really good understanding of the playbook on the installation side of what we need to do to implement microgrids, to take advantage of distributed energy resources, to do load shape uh, management, to make our installations better citizens on the commercial power grid, for example, or to leverage, better leverage uh, the capability that that is available when we transition to an all-electric, non-tactical vehicle fleet, right? So integrating all of the batteries and all of the cars to be able to provide us standby power is one of the things that a microgrid is capable of, of knitting together all these disparate resources uh, and take advantage of capability that we didn't have until we made, started making these investments um, in electric vehicles. So that on the installation side, I think we've got a really good uh, track record, but I don't know that DOD is really leading on a lot of that stuff. Where we are leading uh, are, are on things that actually enhance our capability to execute the mission. And I think the best example, I don't know, there's so many good examples, but one great example, how about that, uh, is blended wing body technology, right? So blending wing body is a new airframe geometry uh, that creates a, a, a system that is up to 50% more efficient than the, the the traditional sort of tubular and, and wing structure that is that when you look at a KC-135 or you look at a um you know a tanker that that's out there doing refueling um or a heavy lift uh air, aircraft um you know the what everybody thinks of when they see it when they see a big big plane in the air um a blended wing body is a, is, a, is, a, is a completely different geometry um it gives us a, a significant amount of uh, potential uh, efficiency potential, which is going to cut the uh, emissions associated with the, uh, the energy that we use. Right, jet fuel is a huge carbon footprint for for DoD. But more importantly, what what the blended wing body technology, as we roll it out, is going to be able to do is to execute the mission and the operation plans that the warfighters in Indo-PACOM have laid out. Um, one of the things that 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 we understand is that there is capability that is needed in the Indo-Pacific that we don't currently have. And I think when we shift to technologies like blended wing body, where we have 50% more range, 50% more loiter time, 50% uh, more carrying capacity, that enhances our ability to execute the mission. Um, and I think that it also has the benefit of driving down carbon emissions. So when you stack those two things together, you are using less, which means you have less contested logistics challenges associated with moving all the fuel, all the places that it needs needs to be in theater. But you're also matching capability and, and enhancing capability that gives the, the warfighter in the, in the Pacific, particularly uh, the ability to to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, which is enhance, which enhances their ability to de de to deter peer competition which is the goal of all those platforms to begin with. 
Yeah, I think the blended wing is a, a great example of that and one that's really top of mind with all the announcements that came out of that recently. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously you want to be able to measure all of this. That's the only way you're going to be able to tell if you're you're making change and, and that progress is being made. So uh, I, I want to ask how important are data and data-driven tools? I know that DOD has its climate assessment tool, uh, but things of that nature to measuring and analyzing the impact of any policy policies or programs related to climate resiliency or climate change? Well, I, I think we started with the deputy. Maybe maybe I'll return to one of the things that, that the deputy is sort of famous for in, in, the, in the building is uh, having people bring data to her so that she understands what is being measured. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, you're exactly right. Everything that we are working on is being integrated in a way that allows us to understand what the, the the biggest bang for the buck that we can get in terms of return on investment looks like. Uh, so I think blended wing body is a great example of a place that we understand that aviation fuel is a significant, significant contributor to the overall DOD carbon footprints, something like 70% of our total carbon footprint. And when we marry that with the operational capability that a technology like blended wing body brings, we can we can do more than one thing at a time. But that requires us to understand both of those things simultaneously. So this disparate sort of heterogeneous data environment that we that we operate in is something that the, the Pentagon for for mission reasons, for readiness reasons, has been on uh uh since since day one with this secretary and this deputy secretary to make sure that we are taking full advantage of everything that we're doing. So whether that's CDAO working with Advana, whether it's the scissors contract that 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 our team just signed, uh, strategic climate readiness uh, um, uh, a technology platform, all of that's being fed into our, we're, we're, we designed all of our work to feed well into the Advana platform so that we can ask it questions to help us understand where we should be investing. So all of the data pieces of these things coming together um, are, are, are giving us the ability to understand what contested logistics looks like in, in UCOM, in the Indo-Pacific, how we need to plan future war games to understand where our vulnerabilities are, where our enhanced capabilities lie. All of the data that's coming in here to be strategically integrated into a plan that gives us the ability to get our hands around all these things is, uh, you know, there isn't. A, I, I've yet to be in a meeting with the deputy where where uh, it was it was not a point of of significant emphasis um, that we are going to be measuring things. We are going to be setting goals. We are going to be measuring and you know checking milestones against those goals and making sure that we have the ability to understand when we're on track and when we're not on track. That's great to hear. Um, and then. You know, as we close out thinking more about measuring and looking ahead and sort of forecasting, um, you know, what should those listeners who are tuned in today, um, you know, that are interested in this space and, and sort of seeing where things go, what should they be keeping an eye out for? One thing I'm really excited about is a policy that we signed out earlier this year, which is focused on electrification of the non-tactical aspects of uh installations, right? So I already talked about EVs, um, but buildings are sort of the central point of, of all of our energy use on installations. And we signed out a policy earlier this year that that is putting DOD, puts DOD on a path 
to make sure that all of our buildings are 100% electric. And the reason that we did that um, is so that we can take advantage of the fact that there is a diversity of energy sources that are out there, but electricity at an installation scale is kind of our common battlefield fuel, right? If we can uh, distribute small modular nuclear reactors, uh, gas turbines, um, PV, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, stitched together with a microgrid, um, our capability is enhanced if we have the ability to use any fuel that's out there to create electricity, to power everything that's in a building, um, rather than being reliant on any one fuel or any one disruption node. Um, and I think that in terms of the way, I hope that that ends up shaping the market relative to the design process that's necessary relative to the uh, better understanding around the benefits of all electric buildings from a resilience standpoint, from a liability standpoint. Um, there's a tremendous amount that we can do uh, to 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 do that. And then maybe more most importantly, the ability that that gives the installation to support the defense communities that are ostensibly there to support the installation. I tend to think of it the other way around, um, where where the defense communities are there to to make the mission of the of the installation possible, um, or absent the defense communities, the mission of the installation is not possible. We are also looking for ways to take the investments that we're making on installations and make them part of the resilience strategy for the defense communities that are surrounding it. And the reason that that's important is that. 70% of the people who work on a military installation live in the community. So if their transportation infrastructure, if their electric distribution infrastructure is disrupted by the thing that we have hardened our installations against, you know, it's not a complete system that we can rely on. Uh, so if their power's out, you know, how are they getting to work? Are, are they, and if they are able to get to work, are they the best version of themselves for the mission that they have if they're thinking about the fact that their kids are home from school because and it's hot or, or it's cold or whatever it is. So stitching those two things together and making sure that we are blending the defense communities and installations uh, in a way that makes the, the sum of each part, um, you know, to, together stronger is something that I'd, I'd be, I'm really interested in advancing as 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 we look in out years from a, from the standpoint of installation resilience, community community resilience, and then all coming back to making sure that we can execute the mission. Well, it certainly makes sense that uh, all those different layers seem to come together and, and play a sort of uh, interwoven part. So uh, definitely interested in continuing to watch that. But uh, for now, Brendan, that's all the time we have. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for your insights. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Happy to Happy to do it. Thanks. You can learn more about the DOD's climate focus at defensescoop.com. Now for this next segment, I'll pass it over to my colleague Wyatt Cash for an interview with our sponsoring partner, Google for Government. Extreme weather events and changes to the environment are increasingly impacting communities around the world. And U.S. defense and intelligence organizations are looking for solutions to gather insights around these changes and how they are impacting missions at home and abroad. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and, and I'm joined today with Google's Sean Waltman. 
global head of cloud geography, to talk about Google Earth Engine, a powerful managed platform for planetary-scale geospatial analysis backed by the world's largest catalog of analysis-ready geospatial data and cutting-edge machine learning. Uh, Google for Government is a Daily Scoop podcast sponsor. And Sean, uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, welcome to the program. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Wyatt. It's wonderful to be had. So I'd like to start, if I may, with uh, can you first describe what Earth Engine is and then how defense agencies are using it to meet their mission goals? Absolutely. Yeah. So Earth Engine has actually been uh, available to, to researchers, uh, including government researchers in defense and uh, elsewhere in the public sector for for more than a decade. It was announced back in 2010. Uh, and it's really become the de facto platform for Earth observation and remote sensing at scale. And when we say at scale, we mean, like you mentioned, planetary scale. Uh, and it is fully managed, which means that there's nothing to install. We take care of all the data uh, and, and we have the platform that you just, just log in and start using. Uh, and over the past few years, we started to get incredible demand from government agencies to be able to use this platform operationally, right? We launched it for research, but what we quickly found out was that they wanted to use this for their operations, and that includes defense. And to do that, Google needed to ensure that we had things like you know, service level agreements and data privacy assurance and priority compute for enterprise customers. And uh, Google really views that these customers, these government users of Earth Engine as impact partners. Um, they are critical users of the platform because in public sector, they have remits over tremendous natural resources like our water and forests. And in defense, um, they have missions to monitor and observe the entire earth 24 seven. Well, and as we are recording this, uh, you know, we've been reading in the news about floods in New England, the heat domes in the South and just continual, uh, situations all over the globe, actually about how climate is really, ex uh, sort of accelerating extreme weather, but specifically on climate change. I'm kind of curious, you know, the office of the director of national intelligence released a report uh, on these changes and, and the impacts that this will also have on national security. And I'm kind of interested in hearing your view on how is the intelligence community using a tool like this? Yeah, that national intelligence estimate from DNI was really eye-opening. Uh, it really gave status to these problems and showed that both the DNI and the IC at whole are paying attention to these as intel problems. Um, there's also been a realization that we have to monitor uh, using these open uh, civilian-oriented Earth observation platforms, these complex global-scale systems that are contributing to national security. A couple of examples, you know, we built these satellites to help monitor agriculture. And so agriculture agencies use Earth Engine to monitor commodity crops or provide data to economists to help increase yields. But that can be used to detect a uh, potential uh, famine, right? Agencies like USGS and Fish and Wildlife, they use a platform to monitor surface water to see how those are being utilized for, for agriculture and what that means in drought-prone regions or what it means to migratory birds. And that can be used to understand all the known sparks of conflicts that concern water uh, from, you know, how people can access fresh water just to drink or the impacts on agriculture. You know, there was a dam that was overtaken on on the in Chihuahua, Mexico uh, a couple of years ago because the water needed to be diverted to the U.S. because of part of a treaty. And so these farmers stormed uh, the dam and held it for a month so that they could use it for their own crops. And we continue to see this pattern, right? State and local agencies, they're monitoring impacts of climate change looking at erosion on transportation assets, 
and eruptions of harmful algal blooms or outbreaks of malaria. Well, those are logistics inputs, right? So if you're thinking about it from a defense standpoint, you know, where am I going to be able to navigate? Where can I drive my heavy machinery or where you might need to stage anti-malarial drugs? So on a global level, uh, intel agencies are using the platform in the context of this NIE uh, to build baselines and understand how the world is changing so that they can understand what it means. Uh, and is it a big deal? Is it a little deal as we observe all these things? Those are really interesting points. Well, um, talk to us a little bit about what recommendations that you would offer government leaders uh, about how to get started with Earth Engine and develop their own use cases for integrating its data into their programs. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, hopefully they already are because most of our power users, a lot of them come from public sector agencies in one way or another, or they're funded by them. Um, and so sometimes it's about looking inside and asking around, hey, is anybody using this thing? And you'll find in a lot of cases that they are, right? Um, and so some of the some of these researchers are doing tremendous work. And, and uh, what we really see is that we want to make sure that those power users have these resources available as they need to scale up and they need to be able to do global water monitoring or whatever it is that they need. Uh, it's really hard for a scientist or, or a practitioner to have to come up with a procurement method to do that, right? So I would, I would say for the leaders that what we really need help them doing is to make sure that those resources are available when their power users are trying to use the platform. Well, in closing, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, can you share some examples of how public sector organizations are also integrating generative AI capabilities and broader AI tools to further accelerate data-led sustainability efforts as we think about climate change? It wouldn't be a 2023 podcast if we didn't mention Gen AI, right? It's so, right. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's look, it's early days for Gen AI and geospatial, but like everywhere else, things are accelerating extremely quickly. Um, Google's pioneering ways for analysts to use simple prompts to be able to talk to the earth and talk to the maps of the earth and be able to decipher petabytes worth of data into answers and ultimately into actions. And actually with Earth Engine, I think one of the, the biggest advantages is that um, as we're developing these geospatial foundational models, if you will, that will end up driving the geospatial gen AI is that we have tens of thousands of peer reviewed scientific papers uh, made possible by Earth Engine over the past decade, which instills confidence that the machines aren't just hallucinating when they're giving an answer, right? That these are mm -hmm. backed methods. So that's what I'm really excited about as we're, as we're starting to just get, get started in that space. Well, terrific. Well, love to talk longer, but uh, I'm afraid that's about all the time we have for this episode. But Sean Waltman, I really appreciate your taking time to kind of share a, a, a more global view of how um, cloud geography and climate change are really becoming important tools, not only for those of us that follow climate, but for national security and defense terms as well, and really the broader federal government. So thank you so much for joining us and, and uh, sharing some of your insights. Thanks so much, Wyatt. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.